Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. If you work in medicine or you've witnessed childbirth, then you've likely seen a patient in the lithotomy position. This is when the patient lies on their back, typically with their feet in stirrups with the bottom of the bed missing, to allow the caregiver access to the perineum, that space between the genitalia and the anus. Given the position's frequent use in the surgical world, I thought we should look at its origin and specifically follow the history of the surgical procedure for which it's named, the lithotomy. This journey will take us through ancient history from the Greek and Roman worlds, through Arabic medicine, medieval times, barber surgeons, renaissance, and right up to the beginnings of the modern era of surgery. Time to learn about cutting for stone in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Lithotomy comes from the Greek words lithos, meaning stone, and to meaning a cutting. So lithotomy literally means cutting for stone. In medicine, the suffix otomy means to make an incision into or cut into. As we'll see, lithotomy was a painful and dangerous operation, but it was undertaken to relieve patients of the terrible symptoms of a disease that plagued us throughout nearly all of human history. In fact, in 1901, the English archaeologist E. Smith found a bladder stone in a 4,500 to 5,000-year-old mummy in Al-Amra, Egypt. Treatments for stones were mentioned in ancient Egyptian medical writings from 1500 BCE, and the medical texts of Asutu in Mesopotamia between 3200 and 1200 BCE make reference to stone disease, describing symptoms and prescribing treatments to try to dissolve stones. So before we get into the efforts to remove these stones with surgery, let's ask, just what are bladder stones? These are like kidney stones, but in the bladder, obviously, where they can grow much larger and cause significant pain and difficulty urinating. What causes them to form? When children, this is typically diet-related. For example, diets high in oxalate-rich vegetables and low in animal protein, dependence on cereal-based diets, chronic dehydration from lack of access to water or chronic diarrhea, and is associated with conditions like famine and drought. As you might imagine, as most of these problems have been resolved in the developed world, this isn't really a problem in the 21st century in those countries. However, bladder stones are still endemic in the so-called Afro-Asian stone belt, which stretches from Egypt and Sudan through the Middle East, India, Pakistan, Burma, Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines. In adults, the main cause of bladder stones is due to poor bladder emptying, whether due to an issue with the nerves that make the bladder function, so-called neurogenic bladder, or from obstruction or blockage of the outflow of urine. One of the most common causes of obstruction is an enlarged prostate, for which we have both medical and surgical treatments making stones far less common. Now let's consider the history of the surgery for bladder stones. The earliest evidence of operations comes from ancient India and Egypt, and with the first actual descriptions of cutting for the stone coming from Hindu and Greek texts. If we recall, the famous Hindu surgeon Sushruta from Podcast 41 he described over 300 different surgical procedures in his text dating back to around 600 BCE, and a perineal lithotomy was among them. We'll get into the specific types of operations as we go. By the time of the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, who lived in the 5th century BCE, the idea of the separation of physicians and surgeons had begun. In fact, the Hippocratic Oath, and I mean the original version, which has some strange parts in it, not the more modern version that graduating medical students take, has the following line, quote, I will not cut, indeed not even suffers from stone, and I will keep apart from men engaging in this practice, end quote. This laid the groundwork for lithotomists and the barber surgeons, see bonus podcast three, as separate from physicians. If you're interested, I'd recommend looking up the original version of the oath just to be aware of how different it really is. 
The term lithotomy was coined in 276 BCE by the eminent Greek surgeon Ammonius of Alexandria, Egypt. A side note, the city of Alexandria was founded by Alexander the Great in April of 332 BCE and was a cultural and intellectual center of the ancient world. Ammonius was supposedly the first physician to suggest crushing of the bladder stones to make it easier to remove ones too large to pass through a perineal incision. Using a hook, Ammonius would stabilize the stone and then use a thin, blunt-edged instrument to split it. This earned him the surname Lithotomus, literally stone cutter. Okay, now let's move on to the age of the Roman Empire. Olus Cornelius Celsus, who lived from 25 BCE to 50 CE, was known for his work De Medicina, one of the best sources of medical knowledge in the Roman world. In chapter 7 on surgery, he gave the first detailed description of median lithotomy in children younger than 14 years of age. The operation he described stayed in use with only minor changes for 1,400 years. He described a technique called Operation Minor or Petite Apparel, which was to make an incision through the perineum across the midline and only required two instruments, a knife and a hook. Celsus also recommended the procedure be carried out in the spring on patients between the ages of 9 and 14 with the help of two strong as well as intelligent assistants. By the time of the golden age of Arabic medicine, this technique was adopted and improved upon. The famous surgeon Al-Zarawi, in his medical text Al-Tazrif, see podcast episode 45, showed an improved technique and reduced risk. He emphasized a ladder approach through the patient's left side, and I'm speculating here, but I imagine the left was chosen for the convenience of right-handed surgeons, rather than going through the middle. Now, this was later adopted by Renaissance surgeons, but we'll get to that. Now, to get from the fall of ancient Rome to the Renaissance in Europe, we have to pass through the medieval period, so-called from the Latin medium avum, or middle age. During this long period of time, there was little activity in managing stones, but lithotomists were commercial travelers who moved from town to town looking for business. They were great showmen, but typically uneducated, with little knowledge of anatomy, and sometimes dishonest. These men would perform lithotomies publicly, without anesthesia, which only took a few minutes. The next major innovation didn't come until 1520, when Joannes de Romanus of Cremona, Italy, devised a new method of perineal lithotomy. This involved using a sound, which is a blunt, long metal rod, to identify the bladder neck, which is where the bladder meets the urethra. An incision into the perineum was made onto the sound using a broad knife, and retractors were used to open up the incision for exploration. Unfortunately for Joannes, his method was published by his disciple, Marianus Sanctus Barolitinus, in 1522, and so the operation became known as the Marian Operation. It was also known as cutting on the staff, and because it used so many more surgical instruments than the previous operation, it was also called the Greater Operation, or Grand Apparel. Marianus described the operation like this, quote, Look but to the Apparians, which is Latin for opening, how it gapes with desire when the conductors have made way for its approaching, and, seizing the stone, it rages like the ferocious soldier ready to enter the breach in the walls of the besieged city. Next come the voracious and vociferous forceps themselves, which often, when their morsel is too large for them to devour, cry out for the aid of their two supporters, or latera, which are then laid side by side with the forceps, end quote. Now, the lesser operation was still used for boys, but the Marian operation was adopted by many lithotomists, and in particular by the Collats, who were famous lithotomists in France for eight generations. It had some advantages over the lesser operation, but trauma to the prostate and bladder neck were significant, 
Hemorrhaging was intense, and the operation was very painful. It often left patients with incontinence, fistulas, or impotence, and carried a high mortality. Those itinerant lithotomists mentioned earlier were often held responsible and punished for bad outcomes. Their motto was, cut and run. Jean Sivial, a 19th century French urologist that we'll meet later, called the Marion operation one of the most terrible in surgery. Now, regardless, it remained in vogue until near the end of the 17th century and was even used by the famous French surgeon Ambrose Perre. But there was a need for a more successful and less traumatic operation, which wouldn't come along until a colorful character named Jacques de Billot introduced, or reintroduced, as we know the Arab surgeons already knew about this, the lateral lithotomy. Jacques Bellot was born to humble parents in 1651 at Beaufort in Burgundy, France. He wanted to practice medicine, but instead joined the cavalry as a private at the age of 16 and was discharged by the age of 21. At this time, he joined Paloni, a wandering Italian lithotomist and hernia surgeon. After spending six years with him learning the craft, Jacques wandered through Provence, France, performing lithotomy for 10 years. He traveled with four assistants who prepared a large group of patients for lithotomy with cupping and bloodletting for several days before the surgery. Jacques would then operate on all the patients in one day and immediately leave town. By 1688, at the age of 37, he either became a monk of some type or adapted a semi-religious habit and called himself Frère Jacques. And yes, it has been speculated that he was that Frère Jacques or Frère Jacques from the children's nursery song. But after much investigation, no definite evidence has been found. In fact, the rhyme probably refers to a group of Jacobin monks who lived next to the Saint-Jacques Cathedral in Paris. These monks were known to enjoy rich food, to play cards late into the evening and oversleep, which might explain the song's lyrics. As to why he dressed like a monk and called himself Frère Jacques is not really known other than he experienced some kind of mystical event. From this point on, Jacques dedicated himself to living a simple life and to improving the human condition, often distributing his earnings to the poor. He famously would only charge a few pence to set his instruments and mend his shoes. He was quite ignorant of anatomy and carried out no after-treatment, leaving God to cure the patient, as he said. But he must have had an excellent reputation because by the age of 46, Jacques went to Paris to teach the surgeons of the hospitals there a new way of cutting for the stone. This method was the lateral perineal incision, which we touched on before with the Arab surgeons. But Jacques was one of the first in Europe to use this method. In April of 1697, Jacques arrived at the Hotel Dieu in Paris, where the head surgeon, Jean-Marie, observed him remove a bladder stone from a cadaver using the lateral approach. This then earned him the right to operate on living patients. He often did this in front of an audience, up to 200 at once, even selling tickets to the event. Now, unfortunately, these did not go well. In one month of operating at the Hotel Dieu in La Charité Hospital, Jacques had a 53% mortality rate on 71 patients. The typical average mortality for the surgeons there was 14%. Jacques accused his fellow surgeons and the monks working in the hospital of poisoning his patients. Now, why they would want to do this, I have no idea. But Mary performed autopsies on the deceased patients and found significant complications, including injuries to the bladder and bowel, uterine and vaginal damage, infection, and fistulas. His reputation in tatters, much like some of his patients' bladders, Jacques left Paris. He moved around France, often claiming that his operation never endangered life and no fistula was to be feared after it. Now, at some point he did receive teaching on anatomy from Fagon, surgeon to King Louis XIV. Using this knowledge, Jacques modified his operation to great success and much reduced morbidity and mortality. 
he would return to Paris two more times and continue to travel around Europe. By the time of his death on December 7th of 1714 at the age of 68, he was estimated to have operated on as many as 5,000 patients. The lateral approach became the standard of care in Europe and remained popular for many years. The next innovation in lithotomy was what became known as the high operation. This was a suprapubic approach, meaning cutting not on the perineum, but above the pubic bone, so above the groin on the low part of the abdomen. This way, the bladder was approached from above, avoiding all the important structures below. The issue here was that, in an era before anesthesia, the patients would struggle and strain. While this actually helped when operating from below by forcing the stone down, this made the suprapubic operation more difficult. The bladder would be pushed further away, increasing the risk that the abdominal cavity would be entered, which could be a fatal error. The first recorded removal of a stone by suprapubic lithotomy was done by Pierre Franco of Lausanne, Switzerland in 1561. Unable to bring down a bladder stone from the perineum in a two-year-old patient, the parents urged him to try from above. Franco did and was successful, but recommended others not follow his approach, as it was too dangerous. But not long after, Francis Rosé of Montpellier, France, described the operation and even practiced on a dead body in 1590. He had hoped to attempt the operation on condemned criminals, but King Henry III of France, who had promised the criminals, died and therefore did not keep his promise, which was fortunate for the criminals, I would imagine. It wasn't until John Douglas, an English surgeon and lithotomist to the infirmary at Westminster, who had not seen Rosé's account, came to it on his own that it was attempted again. He devised his own new operation in 1719, which he published in 1723. Douglas realized that a full bladder would make it easier to avoid entering the abdomen. He required seven assistants, two to hold the knees firm, two for the shoulders, one for the head, one to grip the penis to keep the bladder full, and the last to hold the water pot and hand the instruments. Douglas succeeded in three of his first four patients, the unlucky one being a three-year-old child who died of convulsions 15 hours after the surgery. He showed his patients to the Royal Society soon after their recovery and offered to cut publicly to teach others, but only Mr. Cheseldon of St. Thomas Hospital accepted. Cheseldon cut two by the high operation on May 3rd of 1722, six more in July, and all recovered. He credited John Douglas as the first man to practice the high operation upon living bodies. Cheseldon published his Treaty on the High Operation in 1723, described his instruments, and his practice of filling the bladder with warm barley water, connecting the syringe to the catheter by an ox's ureter. Unfortunately, Cheseldon was accused of plagiarism and so returned to the lateral approach. In fact, Cheseldon, being a student of anatomy, had independently figured out a way to perform the lateral approach with great success. At St. Thomas Hospital, London, he operated on 213 patients with a mortality between 6 and 12%. Cheseldon rarely took more than a minute to perform the surgery with a record of 54 seconds from first incision to extraction of the stone, a small mercy in an era without anesthesia. Interesting side notes about Cheseldon. He was a strong advocate for the separation of surgeons from the Barber Surgeons Company. Realizing that the long-established relationship was delaying the advancement of surgeons in surgery, his advocacy resulted in an act of parliament which established the Corporation of Surgeons in 1745, forerunner of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. So here we are in the early 18th century and lithotomy was still a risky operation. Herman Borhave, a Dutch physician of some fame, thought surgery was a last resort when all other options had been exhausted, and said, quote, I think lithotomy is an act of pure faith, end quote. 
Another option to try to avoid surgery was to crush the stone inside the bladder into smaller pieces through an instrument passed up the urethra that the patient could then pass on their own. This act was called lithotridy or lithotripsy. Again, litho for stone and tritus, Latin, to grind or rub. Tripsis is Greek for rubbing. A number of physicians throughout history conceived of lithotripsy, but did not attempt it as far as we know. In fact, the first known example was actually one of self-surgery by a monk in Citro in Abbey in Dijon, France. And yes, the mustard is named for the town. This brave soul passed a bendable metal catheter or tube into his bladder through the urethra and then inserted a long steel rod which was beveled at the end to act as a chisel. He would pin the stone to the bladder wall with his rod and chip away at it, breaking off small pieces that he could pass until the whole stone was removed. This took an entire year, by the way. Desperate times call for desperate measures, I guess. The first surgeon to use a lithotrite, the name of an instrument used to break up stones, on a human patient was Jean Sivial, who lived from 1792 to 1867 and was a French urologist. This occurred on February 4, 1824, in front of representatives of the Paris Academy of Medicine, and is considered the first example of minimally invasive surgery. Sivial had practiced passing a straight sound through the urethra on himself until he could do it without distress, and apparently he also liked to walk the streets of Paris with a lithotrite in his hand, trying to pick up nuts in his coattail pocket to improve his dexterity. Talk about dedication. Now, although this would come to replace lithotomy, helping patients avoid its terrible complications, there was the usual resistance to change. Most surgeons were hostile, calling it a blind operation, despite the good results. One surgeon named Boyer said, quote, I see well the handle of the pan, but I do not see what is fried in it, end quote, which is at least a colorful way to object. Sivial responded by calling his colleagues butchers, but also used statistics to prove his point. So much so, in fact, that he's considered a pioneer of evidence-based medicine. Sivial showed that in his hands, lithotripsy had a 2% mortality rate in 512 cases, compared to 20% mortality in nearly 6,000 cases of lithotomy done among some of Europe's most highly regarded surgeons. Simple statistics, to be sure, but at the time, the idea of measuring and comparing outcomes was revolutionary, as we've seen before. And by now, we are entering the era of anesthesia, and in fact, the first recorded case of a lateral lithotomy done under ether was at the Middlesex Hospital in London, England, on January 25th of 1847, just a few months after the events of the ether dome. See podcast two. But the lithotomy was still on its way out to be replaced by less invasive methods. In 1874, Henry Jacob Bigelow, the famous Harvard surgeon, developed a stronger and harder lithotrite. This was introduced into the bladder, which was then filled, and the instrument was used to crush the stones. The fragments were evacuated using a glass trap to catch them and prevent them from flowing back into the bladder. Bigelow called this lithotopaxy, which solved the problem of retained stone fragments, which could act as a nidus for new stone formation. And do you remember Max Nitze's cystoscope from Podcast 22? Well, urologists could now see what they were doing. The famous urologist and future podcast subject, Hugh H. Young, from Johns Hopkins, introduced a lithotrite in 1908 in which the stone could be viewed as it was grasped, the first lithotryptoscope. Of course, with modern cystoscopes and other instruments, stones are not difficult to treat. Today, we don't really see bladder stones hardly at all, at least in the developed world, and when we do, we have more advanced technology to treat them. We may no longer need to cut for stone, but we can remember those that did and be reminded of this fascinating history each time we place a patient in the lithotomy position. 
That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. For the next episode, I thought we'd travel to Japan and cover the introduction of Western surgery to the land of the rising sun. One of the most famous Japanese surgeons in history actually performed the oldest known surgery under general anesthesia more than 40 years before the events at the Ether Dome. Interesting stuff. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes, and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.